It's 1905, and John Witzow, one of the church's great educators, is writing articles for the Improvement Era, helping young saints reconcile science and religion. Meanwhile, in Sharon, Vermont, an enduring monument to the Prophet Joseph Smith is dedicated on the 100th anniversary of his birth. This event is celebrated next in Chapter 8, The Rock of Revelation. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 8 of Saints, Volume 3, The Rock of Revelation. Joining us today is Keith Erickson, Director of Outreach in the Church History Library, which is in Salt Lake City, over in the United States. Keith, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Now, Keith, you have a fascinating job, which has recently changed. And I think some of our listeners might be interested to know a little bit more about the Church History Library. Would you mind taking a minute to tell us about the library and some of the things that go on there? Sure. I had the privilege for seven years to serve as the director of the library. And the library is a building, a physical place, but it also is kind of the front door to a tremendous worldwide collection of records about the church's history. We actually store the records in more than two dozen locations around the world, and we manage them as part of a single collection. And so the library has an online catalog that you can search, and it's searching all of the different places around the world. So. That's a really exciting work. Uh, it involves gathering records. We have people who look for historical records and they're searching around in attics and old places, but also modern and contemporary experiences. So we harvest materials off of Twitter that talk about the church, things that are new, like digital publications. You know, many church materials are digital only. And so there's a digital component to that record keeping. But basically the task is to gather the records of the church's history from the very beginning until the present. That's amazing. And I love that you mentioned you're gathering things now because at some point the present will become historic. That's right. And we are living through now tremendous things. And people will look back and want to know about how we did it, how we maintained our faith in the times that we live. Now, I think that's a good point to think a little bit about this chapter, because if we're thinking about our religion today and thinking about some of the things going on in the world, not much has changed because since the beginning of the Restoration, people have been thinking about the gospel, have been thinking about how it matches up with science. And here in the chapter, we're introduced to John Witzow, who has actually at this point got a, a healthy relationship between science and religion. So, Keith, how do you think John's struggle with being intellectually and spiritually minded might be of interest to readers of this chapter? You know, that's a great question. And I love the way you ask it because. One of the tendencies that people have today, you know, they find something on the internet or somebody shares them a piece of information. And the, there are two kind of temptations. One is to think that nobody knows this. Just me and a few of my friends that are deeply connected on the web know this secret that no one else knows. And that's not true. We know all kinds of things. And just because you didn't know it doesn't mean that lots of other people don't know it. And that's what learning is about. But the second temptation 
when we encounter something that's challenging to our, our faith or our experience is to think that we're kind of alone in the universe in dealing with this. And that's just not true. As long as there have been followers of Jesus Christ and people who have tried to accept covenants with God and live with them, there have been challenges to that experience. And we see that throughout Latter-day Saint history. We see that throughout broader Christian history, that as different paradigms for science, for our understanding of the world come forward, people then have to go back and, and rethink, well, oh, what did I assume about the world that maybe doesn't fit now? And how do I keep these things together? And I think John Witso's story is such a great story because we get to kind of walk through that with him and see him thinking about things, then see him keeping them together, and not just being afraid, oh, I found something, what do I do? But then as he reconciles things and makes sense, he shares his testimony and teaches others and writes and publishes and shares. And so as we make sense of our own struggles, I think it's appropriate to share with others and say, yeah, that's okay that you're struggling. I did too. And here's what's helped me, and here's where I am, and here's some thoughts. Modeling that kind of thinking, I think, is a great thing for disciples to do with each other. Well, Keith, I think that's so helpful. It's neat to see someone who was going through this, having these two different worlds kind of pull at them, and he was able to reconcile them. And I think that's really inspiring and faith promoting. And it's interesting to me that President Joseph F. Smith congratulated John for his efforts in providing scientific information and other viewpoints for young Latter-day Saints. And I was really fascinated by this series of articles that John wrote called Joseph Smith as Scientist for the Improvement Era, and that those were really accessible, again, for the youth, because they're kind of anticipating questions that the youth might have, and that's been true forever. But Keith, my question is, are these articles available for us to read if other listeners are interested? They are. John prepared them. They released them over time in the magazine. And then kind of at the end of the series, they pulled them all together into a book. And so and it's the same title. The book itself is out of print, but old copies of it are around and they can be found in libraries. It's a nice read about science. It's also an interesting read about the time period and the ways that people thought about science in the early 20th century are different than the ways we think about science today, different kinds of questions, different base of evidence. You know, they don't have anything that we have today in terms of DNA and cognitive science. But I think the model is a helpful model. So Keith, how did these efforts some 120 years ago shape the way the church has subsequently shared information with its members about controversial or sensitive topics? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that one of the threads that we see common over time is that the church has always been a publishing institution. We begin with the publication of the Book of Mormon. And so publishing, communicating is kind of what we do. And when the apostles were preaching in England, one of the things they did was pull together materials that weren't available in a pamphlet that later became part of our scripture as the Pearl of Great Price. But I think you can definitely see a thread that runs back to the beginning saying we need to publish information. And, and sometimes there were debates about what to publish. And even as they were publishing the Doctrine and Covenants, there were some people who thought, oh, we shouldn't publish it. These are revelations. They're from heaven. How do you publish that? Does that kind of cheapen them? So there's always kind of a conversation. But I think 
running through that, there's a sense that publishing things is helpful. And so moving forward from the time of John Witzow, we can see things like when the church came into possession of the fragments of the Book of Abraham in the late 1960s, those were published in the magazine in the improvement era. As different accounts of the first vision were encountered, those were published and analyzed in church magazines in the 1970s. We see modern efforts to share the gospel topics essays, or there's lots of information in the gospel library app. And sometimes they're about tough topics like history or science, but sometimes they're about tough personal topics like abuse or abortion. So there's been a general thread of publishing and sharing information as a way to help people. I really have come to appreciate the work that goes into providing context in a way that's helpful for people to understand and in a way that can answer their questions, build on their faith, and just help them through those times that they have. As a historian, Keith, have you come across information that you've had to work to reconcile with your beliefs? And if so, how did you do that? And how would you suggest others do that? Yeah, you know, I think you named something important in your question about seeing things in context. And one of the biggest challenges in history, just generally, separate of independent of it being a a tough question or something, is that the contexts are so different and the past was so different. It's always an error to pick up something old and just assume they were just like me. They thought the same as me. I can read this. The words mean the exact same thing to them that they mean to me. It always requires an effort to understand their worldview, their experience, the way they would have heard things and thought about things. And then there's always a work of translation of a different context to ours. Now, one thing that makes it more complicated is the past isn't static. And I think where we are in the story of saints is a good illustration. The church is growing and changing, but society in the late 19th and early 20th century is undergoing profound changes at all levels, uh, political changes, economic changes, social changes, cultural changes. And so we get all of these changes going on at once. And so we look back at one experience with John Witzow or something, say, well, what's he being influenced by? Well, lots of things. And it's often also a mistake to just say, John Witzow is being influenced by this. And to definitively say, that's the thing that was motivating John. But he would have been plugged into all kinds of things in his experience. So I think looping back around to where you were driving is that, uh, yeah, I encounter things as a historian. And I try to be aware of the past contexts. I also try to be aware of current contexts and current changes. And it's helped me to think about, there's a scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants that defines truth as the knowledge of things as they really were, as they really are, and as they really will be. And that passage makes me, first of all, really humble, because as a historian, we don't know all of the things that really were. The people are dead. The past is gone. We have little pieces, snippets here in a journal or a letter, and we have to piece it together. But we know that we don't know everything. The same for the present. Nobody can claim to know everything that's going on because there are 7 billion people on the planet that are doing different things. And how do all of those different things influence us? And by the same token, none of us know what really will be. And so that really big definition of truth for me has been an anchor when I find one thing from the past or the present that doesn't make sense or it doesn't seem to fit. 
sometimes I think, and I've had this in my own experience, I might fixate so much on that one thing. And what I need to do is put it back into that bigger panorama of there's a whole lot of other things going on, things that I don't know, things that nobody knows. But one of the things, another passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that brings me excitement is that the Lord has promised that he will reveal all things to us. And we have passages about line upon line and that we believe that God will yet reveal many great important things. So seeing the things that I learn in a bigger picture has been helpful to just remember, uh, okay, yeah, that's weird. And yeah, that doesn't make sense. Or wow, that makes me uncomfortable but also to figure out where I fit and where it fits and where we all fit in this big picture of truth and the human experience. Thank you, Keith. That's really helpful. And Keith, you're in a fairly unique position. Like John Widstow, you have recently published materials to help church members. You published a book recently on dispelling myths, as it were, and trying to separate fact and fiction. And that's similar to what John was trying to do. He was trying to provide the information and to to provide some context to important questions that people had at the time. I guess a question for you is, is how have the questions changed since John Widstow? Are we seeing much of the same kind of questions or new questions or a bit of both? Yeah, I think that is a really great way to think about it. And I don't know that I've thought a lot about it, actually. I've spent a lot of time in the present dealing with the questions in front of us. But yeah, to historicize it, and there's a bigger tradition here too. Joseph Fielding Smith spent a lot of time answering people's questions and helping them see things, published a bunch of uh, material there. Church magazines for a long time ran a Ask a Question series. And so there are some perennial things that come up. And probably the biggest one would be about prophets. I mean, one of the unique features of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that we declare the heavens are open and that God calls prophets. Well, those prophets keep interacting in the modern world. And so that intersection between divine guidance and instruction and then a human operating in the constraints of the real world and around them, I think that generates lots of points for people to ask about. And sometimes it might be about Book of Mormon translation, or other times it might be about plural marriage. Other times it might be about science and the nature of God and the creation. But I see all of those as sharing kind of a common intersection of the heavens have been opened, light is coming down, but as it touches the landscape, then we have to figure out uh, how all of these things work. And there's still places with shadows. Even as the light expands, there's still shadows. And so we're trying to figure out how that all fits. I think one of the really nice parts of this particular scene is that it was okay to have questions. Here we have John Woodsow, who's just trying to provide information and far from President Smith shutting him down for giving information, it's congratulated. Is that your experience? Do you see church leaders today having that same approach? I am so glad you said that because there is something funky going on in our modern culture, which bundles up a whole bunch of assumptions. And nobody ever spells it all out in words, but people kind of think it. And it goes like this. If you have a question, you must doubt. And if you have doubt, you must not have faith. And if you don't have faith, you probably don't have a testimony. If you don't have a testimony, why are you here? And we don't ever say all of that. 
But there's just like this kind of cultural thing, like, how dare you ask a question? And I think that is something that we have our own particular version of it in the 21st century that we need to shed, because I don't know anything that Jesus taught more than some version of ask, seek, knock, come unto me, come follow me, learn of me. Every time we find him in the scriptures, he's inviting them to seek him and to learn more about him. And we see that in the story here with John Whitsow and Joseph F. Smith. I can say in a small way, working with church leaders at headquarters today, that I see the same thing there. Just take the three men in the first presidency. They each have achieved the highest educational attainment in their respective fields. So I see, and those are just three. We could talk about the Quorum of the Twelve. We could talk about other leaders, local leaders. What I see is a tremendous openness to learning, to engaging with things, to thinking about things, to taking the best that we know from any way that we learn, from science, from history, from the humanities. We need to draw those things together. And then we add to that revelation. And that becomes really exciting. And so I love the part in the story where Joseph F. Smith congratulates him because that's the same reaction I see today is an embrace, learning new things. Definitely. Thank you. Well, speaking of difficult or controversial topics, another major part of this chapter is that we see plural marriage and the Reed Smoot hearings are just two of these issues that are just gripping the church at this time in the early 1900s. And we would love to just take a moment to talk about Francis Lyman and his efforts to ensure that no more plural marriages are taking place. Why is this such an important and critical thing for the church at this time? Well, it becomes increasingly critical for the church because the church had made commitments to stop the practice of plural marriage. And the federal government became increasingly more vigilant to say, are you actually doing the thing that you said, which was to stop the practice? And so we've kind of seen in the story that the original response to the pressure from the federal government, and this in some ways goes back to volume two of Saints, so our listeners will have to make sure to read all of them. But early on, there was a sense, and this is like late 1880s, 1890, there is a sense that this pressure from the federal government is specific to one government in the United States. So one of the re reactions is, well, let's continue to practice the faith in other jurisdictions in Mexico and Canada. So that continues to occur in Mexico and Canada, while in the United States, they are seeking not to enter new marriages. Now, this is a really big shift. We talked a little bit earlier about culture and cultural shifts and big changes. There's a lot on the line here. When we think back in, in historical terms, sometimes we're tempted to just make a little timeline and say, oh, they used to practice it, then they stopped. But one of the things to remember is there were now hundreds of people who are in family relationships that are structured around plural marriage. And so one of the questions is, what do you do? Do you just abandon people, women, children? Do you abandon relationships? Who's responsible? You know, are there financial ties and obligations? And so different people have different experiences. And Volume 2 of Saints showed some of those. Some people, when the call to end it came, they just quit. They stopped their relationship. They walked away. There are women and children who are left detached and, and wondering what to do. Then there are other people who say, 
no, I've made covenants, I've made commitments, we're going to stick with this. And so we start here in this chapter to see that playing out at kind of an institutional level. And so we have some members of the Quorum of the Twelve, two in particular, who are continuing to create new marriages and to endorse the practice. We have other members of the Twelve who are kind of lined up on the side to say, you know, no, we need to stop. And poor Francis Lyman, as president of the Quorum, is the one who's got to make all of this work out. And the Doctrine and Covenants teaches that the Quorum is supposed to act in unanimity. And that's how they know that they're working with the will of the Lord and the mind of the Lord. But so there's this juncture here. And that's what Elder Lyman has to resolve as president. And it's a tough thing to do because it's not just an old issue on a timeline. It's real people and their families and who they care about. And so it's tough. Well, that's a great point, Keith. Thank you. Let's go ahead and listen to an extract from this story. President Smith knew he needed to demonstrate that the church was firmly committed to ending plural marriage. To satisfy the Senate committee, he would have to formally distance John W. and Matthias from church leadership, either by disciplining them or by asking them to resign. He relished neither option. Church leaders were split on how to handle the crisis. In October 1905, however, advisors to Reed Smoot warned them that time was running out for the church to act. While testifying before the Senate committee earlier that year, Reed had promised that church authorities would investigate the charges made against John W. and Matthias. Six months later, no investigation had taken place, and now some senators were questioning Reed's honesty. To postpone an investigation any longer would signal to the world that church leaders were acting in bad faith when they claimed to be actively opposing polygamy. So either of the options in front of President Smith and President Lyman are fairly difficult ones to make. What were some of the consequences facing the church if no action was taken? Well, the consequences in the short term are that there is a senator from Utah who's also a member of the 12 who may or may not be seated. And that's kind of the immediate question. Does he get to represent the state in the U.S. Senate? But I think there are bigger questions that are in the air that they are concerned about. And these are people who lived through the 1880s. Joseph F. Smith was in the first presidency during the 1880s when the federal government disenfranchised Latter-day Saints, when the federal government confiscated church property, including the Salt Lake Temple, when the federal government arrested Latter-day Saints. So I think in their mind and in their memories, and so the immediate question is kind of a procedural question in the United States Senate. And does this senator who was elected get to be seated? But I think the bigger questions that are sometimes stated but sometimes not are things about the federal government's view of the church. And should the church continue as an organization in the country, recognized as an organization? When the federal government disincorporated the church in the 1880s, the church ceased to exist in a legal way. And because it didn't exist, it couldn't own property. And so then we couldn't operate humanitarian efforts and operate temples. And so I think these bigger questions about existence and recognition and being able to operate as an institution are being debated through a tiny question of 
does the senator get seated in the Senate? And you can imagine President Lyman with a lot of difficult things to consider here, potentially asking two of the apostles to resign or ejecting them from the quorum. I don't envy the man. It would have been quite a, a weight. But we do have good news in the chapter. It's not all difficulties and hard choices. We find out east that the church has a brand new memorial that's being constructed. Could you tell us a little bit about the Joseph Smith Birthplace Memorial and what it was aiming to do? Yeah, this is a fun part of the story because it is a celebratory moment. 1905 marks 100 years since the birth of Joseph Smith in Vermont. And there had been a long tradition of remembering Joseph and honoring him. Some of the early experiences right after his martyrdom were kind of tragic experiences. And we get some really intense poetry, things about Joseph being murdered and missing him and wishing he were back. But over, as the 19th century passes, there become additional ways that people remember. They tell stories about Joseph as a preacher, things that he taught, times when they were motivated and inspired. One of the local traditions that sprouts up is that in testimony meetings, it becomes kind of the practice that the people who knew Joseph in person bore their testimony first, and everybody else waited. And so there became, uh, you know, widespread throughout church experience, people sharing, I knew Joseph, here's what happened, and bearing this really personal testimony. But in 1894, uh, on the 50th anniversary of Joseph's murder, they get together a group of people who knew Joseph, and there were less than two dozen still alive. And so we're at a moment in the early 20th century where that first generation is passing. And there are now new generations who have risen up both in Utah, being born in Utah, but also around the world. As missionaries went around the world and converts accepted the gospel and came to Zion, they didn't know Joseph firsthand. And so at that gathering in 1894, Joseph F. Smith wasn't president of the church yet. He was a counselor in the First Presidency. He was present, and he expressed kind of a concern that we're losing the living memory of Joseph, and what will we do for the rising generations? Well, one of the people who hears that message is a man named Junius Wells. In the church experience, he has a connection with the Young Men's Organization and their magazine. In terms of his business life, he's involved in all kinds of different ventures with uh, mining and manufacturing and, and different kind of mercantile pursuits. And so the idea coalesces around Junius Wells to put a monument in Vermont. He visits in the 1890s. He comes back in 1905, and he's involved in identifying the specific place. He designs the monument and submits the proposal to the First Presidency, and they approve. And then he leads really a miraculous Herculean task to assemble that monument during the summer months in Vermont before the winter snows set in. One of the things I really like about this monument inscription, you know, it's not a statue of Joseph Smith. Those were planned for Salt Lake City. They had been already announced at General Conference earlier. They'd be finished four or five years later, and they're still on Temple Square. But the monument in Vermont 
It doesn't depict Joseph. Instead, the inscription says that this is a monument to the testimony of a million people who accept Joseph as a prophet. And so that was Junius Wells kind of adding up all of the people in the, in the past nearly a century who had accepted Joseph's testimony and erecting that monument to Joseph, but kind of secondhand, one step removed. It's to the fact that millions of people have heard his testimony and are grateful that he is a prophet. And so that is, I think, one of the things that inspires me. And when I think about church history is, yes, it happened in the past, but what does it mean today? And what do I offer today? And in 1905, what that generation offered was a monument and the dedication experience. So Keith, you've touched on this a little bit. There is a lot of symbolism surrounding the monument. What are some of the thoughts that went into the design and construction of this particular monument? Yeah, that's a fun question because we have to kind of piece it together from the monument itself. One of the things Junius Wells didn't leave was a description about why he included certain elements. But we can kind of piece some things together. The key feature of the monument is an obelisk, and that is basically a tower with a kind of pyramid top. This type of monument was common in the United States in the early 19th century. And we see a lot of monuments to the Revolutionary War built in this way. So there's a, a, a monument in Washington, D.C. to George Washington, which is a tall obelisk. We see this at Bunker Hill and at other places. And one of the things that the obelisk represented to that early 19th century American view of history was that no one was singled out. Part of the story in that part of American history was that they had created a democracy where everyone had a, a voice, not just certain people. And so rather than elevating a single person in a statue, they saw the obelisk as a representation of lots of people. And so I think that connects with the inscription that he shared of the testimonies of the many people that had to Joseph Smith. Now, there is one design decision that the first presidency made. In the proposal, there are two faces of the monument that are blank today, if you visit. In the proposal, they were to be filled with two medallions. One of them would depict the head, the bust of Joseph Smith, and the other one would depict the head or bust of Hiram Smith. And this is an interesting part of 19th century Latter-day Saint commemoration. Joseph and Hiram are murdered together. And so in the memory and in the commemoration, there's a strong sense of the prophet and the patriarch. That was the office that Hiram held. And so we do see a lot of art and a lot of written things that talk about the prophet and patriarch. There's a statue today at Nauvoo that depicts the two of them on horseback that is kind of part of this tradition of them being together. And so we see that Junius Wells brought that concept into the design, but the first presidency told him not to include that feature. And so in a little decision like that, where we can see a kind of a separation that just says, no, this monument will focus on Joseph as the prophet and seer of the restoration. And when Joseph F. Smith dedicates the monument, he goes through in the dedicatory prayer, 
and he talks about the different stones. And there are multiple stones. The obelisk is the top stone, but he goes through the foundation and different stones in the base and, and all the way up. But in all of that, Joseph F. Smith paints a very big picture of the plan of salvation and the redemption of souls through the atonement of Jesus Christ and the role that Joseph has as a modern prophet in bringing that light and knowledge back to the earth. And so that gives us a little bit of a sense of how Joseph F. Smith and the First Presidency thought about the monument. Let's listen to this extract from the chapter. Under President Smith's direction, the church had begun purchasing several sites sacred to its history, including the Carthage Jail, where his father and uncle had been killed. Other church historic sites in the eastern states remained out of the church's hands, although their owners generally gave the saints permission to tour them. So, Keith, what prompted the church's desire to acquire historical sites during this time? I think there are a couple of factors. And the most immediate one is that the church got out of debt. We talked earlier about the church losing property in the 1880s as part of that. But the church went bankrupt and the church was in debt. And that ultimately cleared in 1907. But so in the early 20th century, as the burden of that debt gets clearer, there are other opportunities that the church begins to invest in. There had been a long interest in historic sites. The church historian's office sent people to visit church history sites in the 1880s and document things. There were some independent efforts, like a photographer, George Edward Anderson, who traveled to historic sites and photographed them in the early 20th century. So there was this long interest. There was a financial ability. And then the third piece is just what happens in any kind of a transaction. You need a seller who's interested. And so at each site, it's different, but for different reasons owners in Carthage are willing to sell, and the owners in Vermont are willing to sell. And it'll be a little bit later in New York that the sites in Palmyra are sold. So there's kind of just a larger moment where all of these interests come together. Of course, some of the sites that were of importance to the church were actually owned by groups that had subsequently broken away from the church or had been inherited or passed down through different channels and different directions. Could you tell us about the relationship between the church and these other groups who were in possession of the historical sites? Sure. In the moment that we're in in Volume 3 in 1905, there is still rather intense competition between the groups. And there are hard feelings between the groups. And sometimes it manifests as competing missionary efforts. Different groups send missionaries to convert the others from their waywardness. Sometimes the competition takes legal form. There are lawsuits about properties that work their way through courts where people try to do things or stop someone from doing things. In the case of the monument at Joseph Smith's birthplace, there is a representative from a competing church group who shows up at the event and claims that they are the true inheritors of Joseph Smith and that Joseph F. Smith is not. And so there's a little bit of that kind of in the news coverage. And the journalists see, oh, they're disagreeing among themselves and they can't figure things out. Fast forwarding over a hundred years, it is interesting to me that history 
has become one of the ways that the different groups who look back to Joseph Smith have identified shared interests. And so there are sites where today the different churches manage and work together in independence, in Nauvoo. There have been times where other denominations have shared their historical documents with the Church History Library, and our conservators have preserved their records for them. There are times when we've worked together to digitize records. And so a hundred years later, history is one of the places where we do get together regularly. And we have a lot of great partnerships in terms of sharing and interpreting and preserving histories. Well, Keith, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk to us today and giving us all of these extra insights. Thank you. It was my privilege. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.